Welcome to Get A Move On, the podcast for movement lovers who are fed up with their injuries and want to enhance their all-round health. On this podcast, I'll help you change how you think about pain and illness so you can drop the frustration and move freely. I'm Amy, an osteopath turned yoga teacher and mindset coach. On this pod, I'll be talking about the joys of pain, injury and illness, the mind-body connection and how they relate to our movement practice so you can get a move on. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Get a Move On with me, Amy Slevin. Today, I'm talking to sleep coach for adults with insomnia, Tracy Hannigan, who actually was an osteopath in training with me back in between 2008 and 2012. And I'm really excited to talk to her today because obviously sleep is a major issue for so many people. I know that I sometimes struggle to sleep, as do millions, capillions of other people in the world. And we all want to know how the fuck we can sleep better. So, hi, Tracy. Hello, hello. Nice to see you. Really cool to see you. I have many questions. Yeah. Many. And one of the first ones, which is just for my own curiosity, (laughs) is I want to know how you transitioned from being an osteopath to a sleep coach, because obviously we both trained as osteopaths. And then what happened? Right. Well, I essentially, in my previous life, pre-osteopath life, I worked in community mental health, my first degrees in psychology. And so I've been able to weave a lot of that into my work as an osteopath and had always been interested in sleep because I've had insomnia myself. And obviously in the mental health setting, you're seeing a lot of insomnia, both creating mental health issues and contributing to mental health issues and being a consequence of mental health issues. So Throughout that bit of my life and the the osteopathy bit of my life, just seeing sleep issues everywhere. And so did some training in order to better support people. So I was doing it informally in the clinic setting. And during the pandemic, during the first lockdown, although we weren't required to close, many of us closed our doors because we weren't sure how to be open safely. And I decided that this was my calling to branch out that part of my work and take it online. And so that is what I did. That is really cool. And it's so funny. I think just as a slight side note, I think lockdown for so many people, it's not like my personal opinion, but for for so many people, lockdown was an amazing opportunity to just like switch things around a bit and maneuver and go into slightly different directions. So that's, you know, I did the same thing and you did the same thing too. Cool. Okay. So one of my first questions is why is it, do you think that so many people struggle to sleep? Like, why is sleeping such a problem? Well, I think fundamentally sleep is different from a lot of the other kind of biological things that go on with us and a lot of the sociocultural things that go on with us. So in life, we're trained, the harder you work at something, the more you know about something, the more you strive for something, the more energy you put into trying to make something happen, the more likely you are to succeed. And when you have that mindset towards sleep, it actually is extremely counterproductive. So life will throw everybody curveballs. We will all have difficulty sleeping. The difference between people who return to sleeping well and normally and people who develop an independent insomnia problem that goes on long, long past the original issue is typically the amount of energy and effort they put into trying to quote unquote fix their sleep when really the thing that they need to do is to kind of just leave it alone. It's very difficult to do because it kind of goes against the grain a little bit, but the the drive to try to change sleep generates anxiety. 
that anxiety gets in the way of sleep drive. And it also causes us to do things with our sleeping behaviors, like trying to catch up on sleep, going to bed early, staying in bed late, laying in bed, like mentally trying really hard to change the situation. And that gets in the way of the biological side of sleep as well. So it becomes really, it's really multifaceted, but really fundamentally comes down to we're trained to want to change things about our environment and to use our brain and our tools to do it. And it just doesn't work with sleep. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I think also kind of like linked with what you just said, you obviously must have read the book by Matthew Walker on sleep. And it's a pretty doomy, gloomy kind of read. Like every chapter is just another really bad health issue that can arise if you don't sleep enough. And you're like, holy fuck, like, (laughs) how the hell are we still alive? (laughs) Because so many of us are sleeping so badly or, you know, shift workers or, you know, whatever it is who have, you know, new mums, whatever, who have disturbed sleep patterns. And all of this stuff that's happening inside their body because they're not sleeping properly, you're just like, oh dear. And it's really like... It may be on the two, the two gloom and doom side, that, that particular book. There are some really excellent critiques of that particular piece of work that might be worth listeners reading up on. And I can definitely send you a, send you a link and a resource for that. That definitely sounds like something that would be useful for so, a lot of people, especially, you know, those of us like me who read that book and just felt like, oh, my God, I'm doomed forever now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the health messaging around sleep is really unfortunate because it's geared toward encouraging people to understand the importance of sleep so that they aren't burning the candle at all ends, that they create space for it in their lives. They don't work all night long or study all night long and, and doing those things on a, on a regular basis are, are quite harmful. But unfortunately, they aren't the people who are reading that messaging. <laughs> it's the people who have insomnia who are scrolling on their phones in the middle of the night going, oh, my God, look at all this terrible stuff that's going to happen to me. It actually feeds the problem a little bit. Mm, yeah. And I'm kind of one of them. So sometimes I can be really tired. And so, for example, and I do something that I know I'm not supposed to do. I'm very naughty. And I don't, you know, this is a a thing that most people do. I sometimes enjoy like watching something in bed Mm -hmm. on the iPhone or the iPad, being kind of engrossed in it. And then I fall asleep whilst watching. And then I have to wake myself up to turn it off or to reposition or whatever, to turn lights off. Your face off the iPad. Yeah, or sometimes it's just fallen over and I'm just listening. And then in so doing, I wake myself up and then I can't go sleep again. And this week, actually, that's happened to me, I think twice, where I've been like so blissfully asleep to Game of Thrones. And then... Let me tell you, Game of Thrones is bloody good. <laughs> it is good. It is good. But I wouldn't watch it myself before going to sleep because then I wouldn't sleep. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. It's like a horror <laughs> movie before you sleep, which is not going on. Yeah. So then I'm like wired again. Mm-hmm. Like, And then I'm like oh, awake for two hours. I'm aware that I'm shooting myself in the foot slightly. What would you say to me? Right. I, mean, I think I know what you'd say. It's, good, it's like having a conversation now with my mother who would say, don't watch bloody Game of Thrones before we go to sleep. It doesn't seem like it's the watching of the Game of Thrones that's the issue. It's it's the waking up 
afterwards and not being able to get back to sleep that that is is more the issue so in general when people are struggling with nighttime awakenings for whatever cause <laughs> if you're in bed and you're cozy and you're comfortable and you're not worried about falling asleep and you're kind of feeling neutral about falling asleep there isn't anything really to do about that and you can look at the flip side of being awake means the longer you're awake, the more sleep drive you're going to build. That rule only really follows, though, if you get up at the same time of day. So if you stay up for a few hours and then you sleep in a few hours, you're not going to be benefiting from the buildup of, of sleep drive. And the more sleep drive we have, the more condensed our sleep is and the more likely we are to more quickly fall back asleep if we wake up in the night. If you are laying in bed and you are anxious about being awake and you are worried about what's going to happen the next day or you're stressing out about something, you're tossing, turning, being physically uncomfortable. The best thing to do is to take that anxious, uncomfortable energy and take it out of the bed and, and preferably out of the bedroom if you can. Throughout our lives, we develop associations, unconscious associations with lots and lots of things. And before we develop sleeping problems, the association we have with our bed is one of sleep and sleepy feelings because we, we don't even think about it. We get sleepy, we go to bed, we fall asleep. Repeat day after day after day for years and years and years. When something causes us to begin to have sleeping difficulty and we're laying in bed awake and we are stressed out about it, we start to disrupt that relationship between our bed and, and sleep. And the bed becomes a place where sometimes we sleep and sometimes we lay there tossing and turning and worrying about not sleeping. We essentially take the simpler part of our brain and we start to retrain it. So if we are anxious, upset, awake in bed, we go someplace else, we do something relaxing, do something enjoyable. Don't If, you, if you're disliking what you're doing, then it's going to be counterproductive. Do something relaxing, enjoyable. Watch the rest of your Game of Thrones, for example, and take those sleepy feelings when they come back to you, take those feelings back to the bed. Now, if people have been doing this for a really long time, they have that strong association between wakefulness and the bed. They might say, well, that doesn't work because I go to bed and I immediately wake up. But it's a process of retraining. So it's not an instantaneous one, but that is an intervention called stimulus control. It's the most evidence-based behavioral medicine intervention for insomnia. Just standing on its own, it's a pretty good technique. Okay, that's useful. So basically don't necessarily stay in bed, get up, do something, carry on watching Game of Thrones. Some people go to the sofa mm -hmm. and then they watch TV and then they kind of fall asleep in front of the TV. Is that acceptable? So, I know that the whole blue light thing is like, oh, yeah. don't watch blue light. I mean, Typically, if you're watching television, the television's quite far away from you, and the light, as long as the light is not bright and you're do, watching something enjoyable, that's fine. It's actually the problem of falling asleep on the sofa that is more concerning, because oh. if you have a long-standing relationship with your bed that is one of, I mean, occasionally it's not going to create an issue, right? But if over and over and over you've developed night after night after night a relationship with your bed that is the anxious one, and say you're doing stimulus control and you're working with a therapist and you're going through this process, you go to the sofa and you watch your nice, enjoyable show. If you start to fall asleep on the sofa, you begin to associate the sofa with sleep rather than the bed with sleep. So it's important to kind of avoid that if possible, only sleep in the bed. Really? Okay. But what if we just switch it up and just decide that actually we're just going to sleep on the sofa? That's absolutely fine. It actually doesn't matter. So my mother, okay. many, 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 many years after I left home, began sleeping on the sofa. She still sleeps on the sofa. It works for her. It, there's absolutely zero judgment about it. 
whatever works for you. But for a lot of people, they want to be able to sleep back in their bed for social reasons or whatever. Uh, very social reasons, I can imagine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Can't help being a bit silly here. Um, <laughs> okay. So you mentioned about regularity and getting enough sleep drive from having a routine. Now, can you elaborate a little bit on that? And yeah. what happens? Like, like, how bad is it really if you disrupt your routine? So for the average person who has no sleeping difficulties, no insomnia, it's it's not that big of a deal. But if you're trying to reverse engineer the insomnia problem, the routine piece is really important. Essentially, you want to find a, a time in the morning that is going to be kind of your fixed wake-up time. And for people with kids, it's when the kids have to get up for school. People who have jobs is when they have to get to work. They find time that works for them. And the general rule of thumb is you go to bed when you're sleepy and then no matter how much or how little you've slept, you get up at that fixed time instead of letting the, the clock kind of slide around to later and later in the morning if you don't fall asleep straight away. And this helps build sleep drive. Now, sleep drive is one of the three main things that regulates sleep. It's like a balloon. So if you sleep all night, you have a balloon that's empty. And the longer you're awake and the more physically active you are, the bigger your balloon gets. And we want a nice, big, full of air balloon when we go to sleep. And then our circadian system essentially hits a point during the evening where it stops sending signals that say, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And then the sleep drive can take over and help us to fall asleep. But if we are laying around for a few hours in the morning, not being very physically active, if we're taking naps, we're denting our sleep drive and making that much, much harder to do, which means you'll sleep less, which make it more difficult to get up at that time in the morning. It becomes a little bit of a vicious circle. I find this very interesting. So I'm just going to talk about myself again, because obviously I'm incredibly interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Far from it. But basically, I like to think that my sleep pattern is reasonably, I'm going to call it normal. And my boyfriend, he can often wake up at sort of, he has a thing for like half past three in the morning. And he'll be very active. He'll get up, wake up, be very creative productive for like an hour maybe a bit more and then kind of go back to bed for a bit and then wake up at 5 30 and then go training mm -hmm. and be completely fine the next day until say like 10 o'clock in mm -hmm. the night and then he's like it's bedtime anyway if I had that existence I would for want of a better word I'd be fucked properly mm -hmm. I've tried it it does not work for me the next day I'm a complete wreck you know, we've had occasions where, you know, he's woken me up while he's doing his thing. And then we end up having these long conversations about nonsense. And then I'll go back to sleep two hours later and wake up at like, I don't know, 7.30, 8-ish, feeling horrific. Yeah. And he's completely fine. Any idea why? Yeah. So what is, what is your normal kind of like to go to bed time and like to get up time? Like 11 p.m.? to mm -hmm. roughly 7.30, although in winter it's a real struggle. That's another question yeah. for a moment's time. We'll sure. get there. But yeah, sort of 11-ish to 7, 7.30, 8-ish. Yeah. So if you imagine the bell curve of the whole population, the biggest chunk of the bell curve in the middle is going to call what we have, we call, I hate this word, this a normal chronotype, normal timing to their circadian rhythm. And it's only considered normal because 
most people have it and society is set up around it and it works for nine to five jobs and all that sort of thing. A certain proportion of the population is on one end of the bell curve and they are almost always a teenager will be in this part of the bell curve, but some adults as well, where they will find it very difficult to fall asleep before midnight. And they will find it really difficult to be functional before 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, never mind wake up. And we would call that a delay in a delay in the chronotype phase. And it's got like some name that has disorder attached to it, which I really don't like because the only reason it's considered a disorder is because it doesn't kind of fit with that kind of like nine to five life that a lot of people have. Like so many psychological so-called disorders is that there are just some deviation from what society expects most people to do. Yeah. And, you know, one of the one of the markers for identifying something as a disorder for most disorders in, in the DSM is a level of subjective distress about the symptoms. And the distress that somebody has about delayed phase situation is that it interferes with them being able to get up in the morning because they have social demands that want them to be up in the morning. So you go to the mm. other end of the bell curve, and it sounds like perhaps your boyfriend, certainly myself, we're in that other end of the of the bell curve, which we're five five thirty in the morning through ten o'clock in the morning is our best time of day. Don't ask us to think after seven p.m. And I personally am in bed at nine o'clock. Um, <laughs> wow, God, that is yeah. exactly him. Exactly yeah. him. So people who tend to fall into that kind of advanced phase. Everybody thinks that's there's some sort of magic about getting up at five o'clock in the morning and grind it. But if it's not your chronotype, and this is genetically determined, if it's not your chronotype, forcing yourself to do something different is going to be miserable, absolutely miserable. If you asked me to sleep in until nine o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning, I probably couldn't. And I wouldn't know what to do with myself after nine o'clock because I'm usually comatose by then. <laughs> So finding a life to fit around your chronotype is really important, especially if you are a kind of a night, a night owl, a more night owl kind of person. They tend to be entrepreneurs in the end, and that tends to be where they're happiest. Winning in that case. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You are winning. (laughs) So that doesn't mean that that you can't have insomnia. It's just that your ideal block of, of time will be at a different place than another person's ideal block of sleeping time. Trying to change that requires medical management, it requires stimulants, it requires melatonin, requires very specific light therapy, and it's basically not worth trying to change it Yeah, because you're just fighting against nature the entire time. Well, exactly. And I think the whole thing of like expecting yourself to try to be something other than you are or to kind of try to obey some sort of rhythm or nature that is not you, yeah, no wonder like that's incredibly stressful as it is, like in any situation, let alone sleep. Yeah. And a lot of people feel like something's broken if they're not kind of sleeping like other people sleep. And I hear that a lot from people. Well, my partner can put their head down and they're out. And why, why me? Why am I having this difficulty? I'm like, well, everybody has different sleep, right? (laughs) And you really can't make a comparison like that because you have five people living in a house, their sleep is all going to be different. We're not going to be the same in any respect, certainly not our sleep. That's really interesting. And I've seen memes also that have said something along the lines of there are some people in the world who fall asleep really easily and, you know, they sleep heavily throughout the night. And then there are other people who find it really difficult to sleep and they marry each other. 
Yes, absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I have gone out with people who are night owls and it just makes life really difficult. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, it makes total sense unless you're able to kind of manage your schedules and your levels of activity and your expectations of each other based on your respective rhythms. Absolutely. But if somebody's day isn't really starting till three or four in the afternoon, and my day is very much finished at like six o'clock. It leaves a small window, but people do it. And it is a joke. The, the larks marry the owls and vice versa. Right. <laughs> cool. So obviously I work with people who have pain issues, injury issues, and we kind of know that impaired sleep makes pain worse. But here's the bloody irony. Sometimes if you're in pain, you struggle to sleep because the pain keeps you awake. And so again, you have this like vicious circle of just like pain, not sleeping, sleeping, therefore pain, or not sleeping, therefore pain. I mean, is there anything (laughs) that can be done to break such a cycle? Yes, yes. The news is good. The news is good. The news is good in terms of sleeping difficulties as a result of insomnia. And when we're talking about insomnia, we're talking about difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, and being kind of like tired and wired. Other sleep disorders are different. These other sleep disorders will cause you to be very sleepy during the daytime. So these... This approach doesn't work for that group of people. It's generally not safe. But if it's insomnia and pain, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is incredibly effective for chronic pain populations. If you like that word, I'm not fond of that word, but that is the word that is tending to be used. It's the word in PubMed. It tends to be very successful. And CBTI is simply a collection of tools to help people improve their their sleep. And it is it is really successful in populations where people are experiencing physical pain for whatever reason. So it is good news. It improves their sleep, then they feel less pain and they feel less pain. It makes it a little easier for them to get through their pain experience or relate to their pain experience in a slightly more neutral, less charged, less emotionally labile kind of tired way. So physically and emotionally. Mm. Right. Because when we're tired, we tend to be more reactive. Like I've had some of my biggest tantrums because I'm exhausted, Mm -hmm. not really because anything else. This is excellent news. This is like way more hopeful than I was expecting, I have to say. (laughs) I mean, I have to say, I was kind of expecting a little bit of like Matthew Walker-esque misery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But this is actually super inspiring and super like encouraging and optimistic. So very glad that we're there here. There is so much that, that can be done for people with insomnia. And the reason that people aren't familiar with cognitive behavioral for therapy for insomnia is because there's not enough people to deliver it. So if you go to your GP, are they going to give you a, a really long waiting list to see somebody who has a, a has a qualification in this, if they can even identify someone? Or are they going to give you something to kind of get you over the hump, which is typically some sort of sedative or sedative hypnotic medication. And CBTI is really effective even in people who are trying to come off of those sleeping medications because they they give you a short-term relief from the sleepiness. The problem becomes that then that is perceived as the solution when in the long run, it's just covering up the covering up the problem, and a lot of them actually interfere with sleep in the first place, which sounds kind of strange, but uh, they help some aspects of sleep and disrupt other aspects of sleep depending on the medication. Right. So somebody I know has sort of a long term kind of sleep issue, and regularly takes Xanax, which is kind of anti anxiety medication, pretty much every night before bed. 
And I obviously have my own thoughts about that. And, you know, I kind of think it's not kind of, as you said, like it's not a long term solution. And obviously what is behind that is some sort of anxiety. So obviously we have to address the anxiety. Is that something that you do? Addressing sleep-related anxieties, absolutely. It falls into the more cognitive piece of the cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, looking at the fears and issues around sleep. It all kind of depends on what precipitated it in the first place. I think the thing about really fast-acting, short-acting, short half-life medications, getting people to sleep, is they are very habituating, and it's often easier for people to continue doing that than to be asked to face those uncomfortable feelings and to do that work and to change the sleep-related behaviors, especially in in the short term. People ask me all the time, can I do CBTI if I'm on medication? And the answer is on medication, off medication, tapering under supervision of your doctor in a controlled way, but not this kind of, oh, if I have a really bad night with this CBTI thing, I'm going to just take a little extra something because that sabotages the whole point, which is to reconnect to your natural sleep ability, to kind of get your head and the anxiety piece out of the way and to kind of realign your behaviors so that your sleep drive system can work. And if it's constantly being reinforced that sleep is something that happens because of something outside you, that's a, that's a problem. That's, again, incredibly interesting because of course, yeah, like sleep is something that happens from within and relying on an external something in order to make that happen is not necessarily so helpful. It almost doesn't matter what that thing is. It doesn't even have to be a medication because if we're kind of giving the responsibility for sleep to occur to something else, then our safety radar, our arousal level drops, which allows sleep drive to take over. So I could believe that this glass of water is what's going to put me to sleep. If I really believe that, I'm more likely to sleep than if I think if I don't have this glass of water, then I won't be able to sleep. So there's a, there is definitely a placebo effect. The psychological effect of attributing sleep to something outside of us allows that part of our brain to just say, okay, don't have to deal with that and I'll sleep. And then magically make sleep easier. Mm, incredibly interesting because I think a lot of the kind of things that I have read Similar like the blue light thing about like being in a dark room and kind of creating an environment that's conducive to sleep, which is like quiet, dark, basically. Like maybe it sounds like what you're saying is like we don't have to have those things. And if we're reliant on those things to experience decent sleep, then we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot in a way because then we're kind of not able to become adaptable, but then only able to sleep in, in those environments and we're not able to sleep in any other situation. It depends a lot on how invested somebody is in having a quote unquote perfect sleep environment. In this context, sleep hygiene is considered kind of necessary, but not sufficient to deal with chronic insomnia because most people who have sleeping difficulties, they've got a dark room, they've got a cool room, they've got sheets they like, they're doing all of the right things. But if you are hooked on having a very specific situation, like you have to have your mask just right and you have to have these earplugs and not those earplugs. And if you make it too ritualized, all of that becomes what we call a sleep effort. And you're right. It's just like any kind of movement. If we do a stereotyped movement to bend over and pick something up over and over and over again, because we read someplace, this headline that said, if you don't do it that way, you're going to break. 
it becomes impossible to use your body, and in this case, use your mind to its fullest ability to literally have that adaptability. So you can go and stay in a hotel and you could forget your earplugs or or whatever, and you can still get decent sleep. So it depends on your the attitude and intent around the kind of sleep environment and, and how you set it up. If you set it up to be defensive and it's very fear-based because you're trying to protect your sleep from anything that could potentially disrupt it, it's actually counterproductive and you'd be much more likely to sleep if it didn't matter to you so much if there was a little light coming in under the door, for example. Right. That Okay. Yeah. That makes total sense. And it kind of brings to mind two things that I have been thinking about recently. So one is, and I feel like I probably shouldn't say this in public, but I'm going to. <laughs> I ran a retreat at the end of the summer. And I didn't realize this at the time that I booked this, the place, but it was on a main road in the countryside. And I don't know, every few minutes throughout the night, there were cars flying down the road, like so fast. And had I known that, I would never have booked this place. But anyway, so one of my guests and I were on the roadside of the house and the others on the, the garden side. So they were completely undisturbed by this. Anyway, so this one guest and I could not sleep. Both of us <laughs> just found the like quiet and then the of the cars flying down the road like oh jesus it's like jolts you awake every two minutes and then like you think it's going to be quiet and then another one comes along oh my god it was the most stressful night of my life it's very stressful very (laughs) stressful that's your your safety radar going is there danger here is there danger here is there danger here yeah and you can kind of train that response by having that happen over and over again yeah unfortunately yeah Mm. And I think the second night and probably the third night, I was maybe just a bit more accustomed to it. Presumably is what happens to people who live on busy roads. They just sort of get Mm. used to it, right? Or they have planes that fly overhead. I'm a bit noise sensitive as well. So you do get accustomed to that kind of external noise and it doesn't bother you to the same degree. Again, it kind of depends on the the emotional response to it, whether it becomes a problem or, you know, if it goes from an annoyance to something that creates a lot of hypervigilance can be tricky. That hypervigilance creates difficulties with like people checking the time at night, which is really common when people don't sleep very well. You know, we go through these natural cycles in our sleep. Sometimes we sleep more lightly and sometimes we sleep more deeply. It's normal to wake up a couple times and remember it. But if you look at your watch and you say, oh my God, it's three o'clock and I've got an interview at 6.30 a.m. and there's going to be a disaster and you create all this emotional energy around it, and try to force yourself back to sleep, it's only going to make you more likely to wake up at three o'clock the next day and the next day. <laughs> but with the cars driving by, there's no emotional kind of attachment to it. Yeah, that's interesting. And then the, there is the opposite thing. And I think they do this in fire stations or I think because my boyfriend Sebastian used to be a fireman in France. And I think this is, if I'm remembering correctly, what he told me, they would play the TV all night quite loudly. So some of them would be sleeping and some of them would be kind of getting up to go to some emergency somewhere. And then they would come back, get into bed for five minutes before the alarm would ring again, then they have to get up again. I mean, that just sounds like absolute kind of complete hell. But anyway. Um, it does. <laughs> <laughs> but they created this sort of constant noise 
in order for people not to be disturbed. That makes a lot of a lot of sense. It's funny, my teenager, hard to believe he's going to be 18 this summer. What? <laughs> he puts his alarm on. He says, "Well, I want to wake up early." And I'm thinking, doesn't suit you to wake up early, honey. You know, you're <laughs> at that age where you've got delayed phase, right? So he puts his alarm on and he sleeps right through it. And I'm trying to encourage him to not turn the alarm on if he's not actually going to force himself to get out of bed and wake up because he's training himself to sleep through his alarm. And that, it could go off three times in a row. I have to go into his room and turn it off because he just doesn't hear it anymore. Oh, shit. He needs a new alarm. <laughs> he needs like a slap in the face. Oh, wowzers. That's really interesting, actually. I find it quite surprising, actually, if there are teenagers who do wake up early. Like, they're freaks of nature, frankly. Yeah, it's not a natural way of being for most teenagers. I had somebody bring her daughter to me, and the complaint was, I go to bed at 9.30, and I lay there for like three hours before I fall asleep. And so we're talking, how old are you? 15. That's why. You're not going to fall asleep at 9.30. It's biologically not going to happen. (laughs) Right, exactly. Exactly. So sometimes normalizing these things is the most important thing that we can do. Mm. Now, I want to hear more about CBTI. You kind of mentioned briefly what it stands for, but I just can you just elaborate a little bit more? Yeah. CBTI stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. And it's different than, say, the CBTI that people will get if they are seeing a psychotherapist for depression or anxiety, although there's some overlap and some similarities. It's essentially a collect of behavioral sleep medicine tools to help people kind of reconnect to the the biological side of their sleep by regulating that balloon, working on the associations between bed and sleep, working around people's fears about not sleeping and how realistic they are and how much they should be invested in in those particular fears. It's essentially a a collection of tools. There's over 30 years of evidence behind CBTI. It's the number one recommended treatment approach for chronic insomnia, according to all of the major medical and sleep associations. So Australia, the States, the UK, Canada, everywhere. The difficulty is generally it would be a one-to-one referral from your GP. And frankly, it's sort of more resource intensive than some of the other options that are typically not the recommended first line approaches, such as here's an Ambien. Those things have their role. I'm, I'm kind of a medication agnostic. You know, I like to say Ambien and those sorts of things were created for people who have rotator cuff surgery and they need a few weeks of decent sleep, <laughs> but it does not address the whole psychological side behind the, the, the fear of not sleeping that drives the problem in the first place. And that's where CBTI focuses a great deal of time on that piece. Generally, you start with the behavioral changes because people who are convinced that they aren't going to be able to sleep or get sleepy again quickly become convinced that it's possible because it it helps them build confidence that they aren't broken because they do get quite sleepy in the beginning. It's not an easy thing to do. And then we start unpicking the emotional side and the, the more psychological side. And the goal in the end is not to have somebody sleeping perfectly for the rest of their life. Because life will throw you curveballs. You know, I've had insomnia really badly twice over long periods of time. The second time I went through, I did CBTI. Years on now, I have, you know, we all have life throw these things at us. And I have a couple weeks here and there where I'm not sleeping very well. But my emotional reaction to it is like, I know 
this is normal and I don't have to do anything about it for it to pass. And so the ultimate goal is to drop that fear and that need to kind of control sleep or to think that we can control sleep. That's kind of the, the long-term goal. In the short term, teaching people the, the behavioral and mental skills to eventually get there is the goal of CBTI. Fabulous. I love that. I think I need to book in with you, frankly. I'd be happy to help. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great place to leave it, Tracy. I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about it. How can people get hold of you? On Instagram, you can find me at Tracy the Sleep Coach, and my website is tracythesleepcoach.co.uk. And if you are on Facebook, I do run a free Facebook group called Sound Sleep Strategies. Amazing. Tracy, thank you so much. This has been amazing, really like inspiring and full of hope, I dare say. Yay, good. Because there is a lot of hope. Mm. Yay, yay, that's all we want to hear. <laughs> We're not doomed forever. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you to everyone for listening. That was Get to Move On with Amy Slevin. If you enjoyed that, we'll be back next week with a slightly different topic. And if you didn't enjoy that, we'll be back next week with a slightly different topic. Thanks for listening.